I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wolchko. And today we're bringing you a very special live episode of Theory and Practice, a podcast where we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. On the show, we find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. In this episode, we were joined on stage at Google Cambridge by three distinguished researchers in the industry. Finale Doshevelas, assistant professor at the Harvard University Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Pardis Sebedi of Harvard University, as well as the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And Alexis Borisi, a leading life sciences entrepreneur and investor. With that, let's get into the conversation. Finale, Pardis, and Alexis, thank you so much for being here on Theory and Practice. Thanks for, thanks for having us. All right. So uh, one of the things we always start off the show is for people to tell us a little bit about who they are and how they got to where they are. Uh, so maybe I'll kick off with Pardis. I was born in Tehran, and I grew up in the United States and went to MIT and uh, went on to do an MD and a PhD. And my lab now focuses on a number of things, but essentially it's a lot of folks that are data scientists. But from an interdisciplinary standpoint, we are trying to impact human health using data and technology. And a big focus for the last few years for us has been in pandemic preemption and prevention. So trying to detect infectious diseases wherever they're occurring and to be able to understand them and characterize them and stop them before they become pandemics. And for example, you were very involved in recent work around the Ebola outbreak and some other things like that. Yeah, so we work in West Africa and became really involved in the West African response to the Ebola outbreak. And then also since then have been you know, engaged in outbreaks of Zika in the Americas or mumps uh, here at Harvard. So, you know, all around the world. Excellent. So maybe Alexis, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are. So I'm Alexis. I grew up in the Midwest, in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I trained originally as a chemist and chemical biologist. I'm a PhD dropout. I got very excited on sort of the, the, the entrepreneurial side and company creation side and uh, started creating my first uh, biotech company when I was in my 20s. I've been both on the entrepreneurial side of creating companies from scratch and as a uh, venture capitalist investor. Through that, sort of had my hands deeply involved in creating 15 biotech companies. And I like to look for transformative opportunities where bringing science and technology together, you could do something that's going to really make a huge difference for patients. Excellent. So, Finale, could you tell us a bit about how you got to where you were? So uh, I've always been interested in too many things, whether it was literature or math or history. Um, when I went to my undergrad, I majored in aerospace engineering, thinking I worked for NASA. Then I switched to being a roboticist, then a pure machine learning person. And if I look back through the thread of all that, I've always been really excited about how to think about decision making under uncertainty. And that's what guides our lab's research today. We're working on machine learning to assist with healthcare decisions. We also still have a good time. I was just mentioning to folks earlier that we've got a music video on variational inference. So um, I'm trying to combine all worlds. We will put a link in the show notes to that video. Speaking of decision making under uncertainty, we actually don't have an agenda here today. We were talking a little bit before in the other room. I guess we should try to pick up the thread somewhere. Anthony, what, was there something that kind of stuck out to you that you wanted to kick off the conversation with? Yeah, so one of the things I think is really interesting about the group today is you have, you know, Alexis, who's been one of the real luminaries of company creation, and then kind of some of the great intellectuals in Pardis and Finale. So one of the discussions we were talking about before the show is, 
In recent years, there's been a lot going on in industry with machine learning, where you see a lot of the breakthrough ideas have actually come from technology companies. At the same time, there's still a lot going on in academia. To start off, Finale, where do you feel like the intellectual center of gravity is for machine learning these days? I feel like that's a bit of an ill-posed question because there's so many important kinds of research that need to happen in machine learning. I feel like academia is very good at doing longer-term research for figuring out details that may not matter immediately for industry goals. Uh, and I'm lumping to some extent like industry labs that are pure research labs into that category. Uh, and, and there's a long history of like, you know, the Bell Labs and et cetera. And then in industry, I mean, the resources are insane, right? So if there's someone who's going to solve problems in like images or text and stuff like that, that's where all the resources are. So I feel like there's a very complementary set of strengths there. But, you know, go back to the theory side. I feel like in recent years, I've seen some really exciting theory papers coming out of, you know, places like Google or Facebook or Amazon. What do you make of that? I think that's fantastic that that's happening in industry. I, I mean, I think it would be fantastic if that continued because that's great that there's that much interest and support for developing the theory. I don't know how long it will last. I, I hope, again, that that would continue. Me too. <laughs> I mean, and, and I think that... You know, what I've been seeing is even in the lifetime that I've been a faculty for about a decade, it's become more and more challenging. There's more and more opportunities in industry. In particular, certain companies like Google have a lot of additional funding to al allow for a complete arm just for something to be called Google Ideas, you know, and for that to be something you have. The fact that all these big organizations are able to just sort of invest in fun projects, the fact that I think Google Brain is just working, you know, can work on lots of different fun things that are not necessarily related to ads. I mean, it's moving and it makes it really challenging because I'll have, I used to, I have a lot of folks who do ML in my lab and now they're like, I can do the same thing, but for a seven figure salary. And I'm like, I don't know what to do here. I can't compete with that. I mean, while it's challenging in academia, when there is so many alternatives, I think it's actually great as well, because it forces us to say, well, what, where do we make a contribution? We can't be complacent. We have to figure out how we can create something of value for them as well. And so I think it's wonderful. Um, I also think it's wonderful that my trainees have more opportunities. Generally in academia, you know, historically, it's been this thought that you know, you do a PhD and your goal is to be a faculty. And I, I often tell people as a faculty myself, it's not that great, you know. I mean, it is and it isn't, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the expectation that that is success. And we should train more PhDs because it's amazing to have a training where you have to create something and put it out in the world, and you have to have a hypothesis and figure out, like, then you know, how do you then rigorously test that hypothesis, get the right controls, and wouldn't that be great if more of our politicians understood <laughs> that idea or you know of evidence? And now you're just talking crazy talk. Now, yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I, I think it's great. I think it's great that we, you know, our PhDs and our students in general have lots of opportunities to think creatively in any industry. And, and let's not forget kind of an important point that you made there is that like we're training the people who go into right. industry. So that's a really essential role that we as academics continue to have. I mean, an interesting variant, Anthony, on the, on the question you just asked is where is the center of gravity on if you put the frame of in the life sciences on that? Right. Because if you take sort of machine learning in general, and sort of you put out the you know the statement, how much of that, where is the center of balance between industry and academia? Where is it that that innovation is happening on the life sciences side? And I, I pose the question I ask because just in a lot of life science applications, particularly as you go into sort of the therapeutics and the diagnostic side of the world, right now, like you've had this huge proliferation 
almost every presentation you'll see from people pitching it will say someplace on the first two slides about their AI slash ML techniques that they've incorporated. Yet when you meet with people, talk with people, you realize they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't have anybody in the company, or if they have somebody in the company, they have one person that has some general vague idea of what they're talking about. It reminds me of times like, you know, five years ago, those went to have been AI slash ML, it would have been saying big data. Yeah. And it's a thing that everybody, you know, knows is important, doesn't understand, feels like everybody else understands it more than they do and sort of wants it. Fair. You kind of pose the question of where is the center of activity in life sciences? To me, it still is in academic medical centers. When I think about, you know, where are the great breakthroughs coming from? It feels like they're mostly still living there. Would you agree? I think that's right. I think one of the you know provocative questions going forward, if you look on things, you know, we were talking a little bit like in the green room or the, the non-green green room beforehand and saying like, well, what's one of the reasons why so much is happening in industry and machine learning in general? Because you have the resources, you have the compute power, but you also have if you're going to do something in facial recognition, you have all the images, right? You have sort of the scale and the source of data there. So an interesting question going forward on the life sciences is for any type of machine learning, you need to have the data, right? So that's the, the raw material. And where is the raw material going to exist? And is it going to exist on the academic side? Or as we imagine the future world where we really get interoperability and well-curated and well-accessible electronic health record systems that interface to you know, good, high-quality molecular information, where does that data sit and what impact does that have on the future center of gravity? So what's the answer? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's an open question. There's a lot of different types of data. And, you know, what I've kind of seen in, in my brief experience here is that people that have a particular predilection to a type of problem go to where they can solve the problem. So if you care about image recognition, you're going to go to where all the images are in order to do that. And there's a lot of different types of problems to solve today. And like, the Broad is doing a lot of sequencing. And so if you really care about sequencing data, like maybe that's the place that you might want to spend some time at. And there's many other kinds of, of data as well. So I think thinking about the diversity of the problems and, and related to the data that people are collecting is going to be kind of important in figuring out where the, the gravity wells are for, for talent. Um, so I guess to then jump off that, like what do you see being the interesting types of data that are growing and that will attract interesting innovation? Well, actually, I wanted to take a step back. This, this notion of wells, I, I find very concerning because it is true these days that you can only do research, if you're, unless you're a theorist, where the data are. And so uh, if a certain company or a certain institution have the data, you know, that, that's where the innovation happens, but it can't really happen elsewhere. And I think in the life sciences, at least there's some notions of certain types of funded data become publicly available at some point, which I think is a really great thing. We don't really have that in a lot of other parts of CS. I think that that's an important question to be thinking about because the data are kind of what drive a lot of the innovation. The algorithms that are often being run on these data are not super fancy uh, in many times, you know, but, it, but it's the data that tells you. It's a great point. Like I often find myself looking at things and, and thinking about opportunities and saying, and the answer to this is still going to be, I don't know. As you run it into the future, does the data become freed into some type of commons or generally easily accessible, or does it remain you know, very much in individual hands? And you can think of that like, you know, there was a, an entrepreneur that I was talking to recently, and he has a, a, effectively a total live feed off of you know, some 20, 25 million electronic health records. 
And because he's made a product that is being used in hospitals for, you know, it's basically sort of a machine learning algorithm that he proved on a prospective basis that's being run, you know, daily in those systems. The only way it can be run is for the hospitals to upload live their data. So now he has access to that via a service that he's providing. But then, you know, you talk about people going to where the data is. That's a really interesting data set. You know, high quality, live, continually updating. Are those things that end up in those wells? Or are they things where in the future it becomes a easily accessible and anybody can access into a hundred million live, you know, lives, live snapshot of what's going on in a de-identified manner across the entire health system? And some of it will never escape a well because of the regulatory concerns or just given current technology, it's too difficult to move the data around. But then there's this giant gray area, which maybe is the part that's actually you know, interesting to think about in terms of you know, opening or you know, sharing, where you can move it, like it's possible like monetarily or whatever, logistically, and there's no information that really can't be shared um, without some kind of a consenting process. I think there's an interesting example with, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, we saw the birth of open source code. And that suddenly became an idea that took over and And at some point, a lot of industries realized that it was in their best interest to make open source software. You can imagine a similar narrative starting to emerge around data commons and the idea that this is a communal good that a lot of industries can benefit from. One thing that was important in that, though, was version control. And without getting too into the weeds, there was all of a sudden a way to actually collaborate. As before, people were like shipping floppy disks to each other or tarballing code, and there'd be one person who would like figure out what the diffs between different people's work was and like check it in. And... Right now, I don't think we've got a way for people to like add data to a common data set. Like, you've got another data set. Like, if you collect some extra data and try to add it to the thing, it's just now you have two data sets. You got two problems. So there's something there that's like not quite baked. We need GitHub for data. GitHub for data, yeah. And people are working on. I think there's something called the DAT project, and it's mostly centered around civic data, right? So like, you've got information from your city and you want to be able to access it and do something with it. So people are thinking about it, but for really large data sets, which is the stuff that we generally care about, I, I don't think it's solved quite yet. Yeah, I mean, there's the there's ICU data through the team at MIT. The uh, PhysioNet team releases Mimic and EICU. Um, and recently, I helped organize a conference for machine learning in healthcare um, in Michigan, made a lot of data available through the crowd to um, those participants. So I think that the, the cloud helps solve some of these issues. I think there's mechanisms in place, but I think there's really a question of how do you make it beneficial to uh, private industry to actually share data? I, I think if it were, then all of these other technical problems can be solved because I feel like we have the technologies to address those. Well, I mean, I think a lot of times it's about aligning incentives, like, and it's not just private industries. It's, I mean, a lot of academics also don't share. There's certain fields. Genomics is a really special field in which somehow early on very strong leaders were able to convince everyone that that was in their best interest. And also to set aside a set of rules around that, because you can't just sort of say everybody share data, because it's a lot of work to collect data. And it's a you know massive burden, and if you know you collect it, and there's no value to that. Then how do you sustain that collection? So could you actually tell me that story? So I've heard that that's the case. That some really strong personalities early in the days of sequencing kind of established a really powerful culture. What happened? Yeah, well, there's a particular meeting. It's called sort of the Fort Lauderdale Agreement. There's a um, a meeting that happens a lot with a lot of the genomics heads down in uh, in Florida, and in this particular. Uh, meeting, they kind of decided like there needed to be a way of sharing this data because they realized it was complex and there was a lot to do with it. And a lot of the early efforts in genomics had to be 
collaborative had to involve major consortiums and needed, you know, it, it couldn't be done in small labs. And so they sort of said, hey, there's no way we can do this without working with each other. And, and it's funny, I've been part of a lot of those early consortiums. And they're very interesting at first because there's all these people who are here to collaborate, but they also know that they're technically competing and they're trying to dance around Fren each other. Frenemies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and there, sometimes it's like there's some people that are just real competitors and other people who just don't know what to do because it's like, but we are working on the same thing. And so, you know, it's challenging. And I remember early on it was very fraught. But then over time, people started realizing we can make this pop bigger. We can all succeed even more. This field suddenly became an important field because I think they all agreed that it was something that needed to be done and needed to be done together. Anyway, so the Fort Lauderdale Agreement sets down a set of principles by which you should share your data, but it also puts on things that protect the data generator that says you have a certain amount of time to, uh, you can release that data, but you get the right to be the first to publish about that data set. Others can use it for you know, their purposes or to feed their, but, but they can't do a primary analysis on this data. And that sounds kind of like a, like a mini Hippocratic oath for genetics, like yeah. a code of conduct almost. It's a code of conduct. And the nice thing is that, you know, it all then goes through peer review. So if you suddenly are trying to publish a paper, somebody everybody gonna, knows, yeah. everybody knows, and somebody will say, you know, Hey, this is not their data. So you, you, you can't really just run off with it. So, it, you know, and we try to do this in the in the infectious disease and the outbreak space. We kind of called it the Kenema principles, which is just Kenema means is a city where most of the devastation during the Ebola outbreak happened. And the city's name actually means translucent, clear like a river. And so we were like, that's what we one must do, right? If we're going to solve an outbreak, I mean, here's a place where you really need to share data because you don't have time. You can't be like, well, I'm going to publish it in six months and right. then this time. I mean, by that point, we're all dead. Like, it's you can't do that. So we try to set out a set of principles with these even faster time frames that you need to work. But we, in sort of laying out our version of it, we really tried to say, like, you have to take seriously the responsibility you also have to the data generators and how do we incentivize a system. So I think it's something collectively we need to think about with all kinds of data, but we also have to be very mindful and thoughtful about how do you create a system that's sustainable, that incentivizes people to act for the good of mankind. But even with that, like, you know, as a, a general background framing the field, that's not, you know, there's still an enormous amount of genomics data in industry, mm -hmm. right? And that doesn't flow perfectly. Like, you know, the sort of the foundation medicine right at this point has done in a targeted panel. So it's not a whole genome sequence, but you have sort of 450,000 and growing, which is a very sort of large scale mm -hmm. because of maybe the background of the academia, right? They do release some level, mm -hmm. right? Not the raw data files with some sort of, you know, lag that they determine when it comes to. And it's interesting, right? Because you also then say the way the company will then put its product out into the electronic health record, because again, you think of sort of intersecting different data types, still for the majority of places, it links up as a PDF. Oh. <clears throat> you know, that's file. the wrong format. And yeah. so it's not, not only right does it not have that. a format that sort of smoothly <laughs> interfaces into any of sort of the, the, uh, the other data sets, but then even then within that PDF, you only have the highest level of, of abstraction uh, of the information, and that's what gets released out broadly. And of course, the detailed files never go anywhere outside of the... Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of that. Yeah, there's, there's like releasing data, but in a way that you know nobody will be able to use it. So, I mean, I have thoughts, but, but you would know a lot better than... How would you incentivize companies to share their data? What would be what what kind of value proposition could you use to to make that happen? Well, I think you highlighted you know one of the core issues, which is generally the acquisition of the data, and more particularly the acquisition of the data in a form that is highly usable is really expensive. I think that's the interesting thing at the moment, right? Like you look at the potential of what could be gained really, really broadly from easy access to EHR data, but you know what keeps that maintaining? 
What are the, the incentives that undergird that? Actually, just to deep dive on an example that parties you started talking about, a lot of your life's work is about trying to build a pathogen weather map. You know, the idea of as outbreaks happen, ingesting genomic data to be able to track the spread of a bug from one person to another. Say a little bit more about how you see that field will play out and how it interfaces with more traditional microbial communities that do cultures and resistance and all these kinds of things. Um, sure. So, you know, one of the things that my lab is thinking about all the time is like, why is it that no one knows what, you know, what's making them sick? I've been in meetings talking about precision medicine, and, and probably one of the easiest things that you can do in precision medicine is just tell what bug is making you sick, because it's the thing in your body that you just shouldn't be there, right? And so there are challenges with doing that kind of work of, of basically identifying like what's you know making you sick if you have an infection. But we're not even close. I mean, we if you go to the ER here, I mean, pretty much like if you're lucky, you'll get strep and flu, but nothing else. We don't know what makes us sick. We just hope it's not something bad. And we look to our neighbors and say, did you get me sick? Did you get me sick? Like, and how are you doing? And how long did it take? In general, we don't use data enough in medicine, like real data. It's a, it's a lot of done kind of heuristically. And like your doctor just sort of reflecting on, well, maybe you got this, maybe you got that. And it, it should just be a running log of like what is out there. So the world that we see is essentially, it, you know, eventually is in your home because nobody should go to a waiting room to wait to get, you know, diagnosed because you're going to make everybody else in the waiting room sick and get yourself sick in the meantime. Anyways, the world we see is that people can be able to do basic diagnostics at home, and if they still don't know what they have, um, they might you know, go to a clinic where they can get a full panel um, of potential infections. And you know, I think a lot about incentives, and so you want to get good data. The best way to get data is give people something back, right? Give them information that's actionable. I mean, most of the time, you don't even know if you have a virus or a bacteria, and that actually makes a difference. There's like an idea of feed a fever, starve a cold. You really want to even eat different things, act different ways if you have one or the other. And so if we can create a world in which people have the data at their own fingertips and people are incentivized to give the very best quality data because it'll give them the best likely you know, um, information about what they have, then we could begin to start finding out what's circulating. And, and if you know what's circulating in you, that information is really good to everybody in your, you know, in your office or at home. The thing is, in general, we don't use enough data in medicine, but infectious disease, we, don't really, we really don't use it enough because the network matters. What's making your neighbor sick is likely what's making you sick. And so we can kind of use that to increase our probabilities of identifying what people have. Anyway, that's sort of, I'm rifting in the wrong direction, but essentially, you know, the world that we want to create, the weather map we want to create is one in which people get information in real time about what's making them sick, that gets uploaded to the cloud, and it ends up in allowing people in your network to more quickly start to identify what they have. Clinics and regional sequencing centers can then help articulate that even better, and then it's an updating system. We're constantly improving and a lot of these you know, AI that we try to do is data hungry. So we're trying to create a system that feeds the most data in and feeds the highest quality data in by incentivizing users to give the best quality data because it'll give you the most likely outcome. Now, Alexis, earlier on, you were one of the people who built Foundation Medicine, which had, a, in some ways, a very similar vision, which was trying to do the same thing but with cancer data. When do you think we'll see something like Foundation in Medicine emerge for infectious diseases? It's a great question. And of course, there's also a cost-effectiveness question that, that comes in. And I think in infectious diseases, that's been one of the big obstacles so far, because the reality is, although it's inefficient for people and people go into the emergency room and they expose themselves to being sick or to getting other people sick, the reality of that is it doesn't cost a lot. And for the majority of cases, it works out okay. And it's a very, very tiny minority where it doesn't. So then you have to get 
the types of analysis does cost a lot. It's just it's that cost is not articulated, right? I mean, in man hours down and all you know, all sorts of things. You know, and then if you hit an outbreak, then it's like trillions of you know billions of dollars of economic loss. So there are costs, there are risks. They're just not that visible. Yeah, but it's also one of those that's. It is hard to clearly quantify that. And you also do, like, even if you correctly identify what something is, and the question becomes, well, what action do you take? And does it lead to, you know, to the point if you want to say it's sort of lost productivity, that do we have interventions that actually will really affect what those are? And sometimes the knowledge of it doesn't make a difference. It's absolutely the right thing. I mean, you can put this into a more generalized thing, right? The modern molecular stethoscope as a concept. And what you can look at, as opposed to sort of the classic CBC, and say, imagine for a moment that technologically the cost of sort of a multimodal, whether, you know, omic analysis, whether it's a genomic or proteomic via mass spec, or there's a variety of different things we can think about, really goes down uh, to a de minimis cost. And if you had that data, if you had that data from enough patients longitudinally with enough outcome, right, you'd be able to figure things out and have what would become an enormously uh, effective and powerful tool. And, you know, you go back like in foundation medicine, we had this vision and we never got there on it. Like there was the first thing, like just have a lot of data. Once you have it, you're able to do things today that like just 10 years ago seemed science fiction. Like if you were trying to create a precision medicine oncology company 10 years ago and you're like, oh, here's this mutation. How often does this mutation occur with this other mutation? That was a really hard thing to get an answer to. Today, it's trivial and you just see it and you can just go query the database and anybody can go buy access to that database. And so there's part of the profit piece coming in and you can have your answer really rapidly. We had this vision uh, and we actually built the product to try it. It just never got really widespread adoption. But the thought was, wouldn't it be cool, you know, since so many cancer patients, like their particular set of variants and their clinical characteristics start really coming down to a small bucket really rapidly, wouldn't you just love to have a experience-based matcher, right? So that a given physician is seeing a patient and you have their full molecular information, you have their full phenotypic information coming in, and they could say, hey, out of, you know, 100,000 other patients that are being treated right now, here's a set that is closest match, and this is what people treated them with, and this is what the outcomes. And you could almost imagine, right, like a, here is your probabilistic adjustment of what treatments you might consider and what the odds ratio uh from an empiric data set. Kind of like people with this disease also watch these movies. And then you can extrapolate it even further exactly to that point and saying, well, okay, there could be insights here that are beyond the sort of simple matching that are not obvious because, you know, the human mind can handle about sort of three variables at once at best. A few, you know, go beyond that. And so could you actually then see things and make recommendations that were beyond just this is what other people are doing and what's coming out? As it turns out, right, like that data set one, very difficult, you know, to, to assemble to the level and scale that gives you that satisfaction. Just going back to the point on infectious disease and even just more broadly, like you can really see what we want to have. And technologically, like this is not a technological problem. We can collect this, just again, call it the broad scale molecular stethoscope information. More on a societal level, it's a cost point question, right? It's sort of uh, when do we consider it cheap enough that it makes sense to fundamentally have? And then, of course, that gets connected going back to our previous conversation of if it is cheap enough, then when are the systems so that you can really integrate that to the digital phenotypic information longitudinally and have general access to that versus having that just in little sort of isolated walled gardens? You know, you talk about a digital stethoscope. And in the context of machine learning, the kind of biggest hammer that we have is supervised classification. You get a decision back based on what people have predicted. But if you're delivering those kinds of decisions to people like yes disease, no disease, 
there's this extra step, which is, well, why did you say that? And this seems to be kind of a large problem. I think this is a large part of what you work on in the context of EHRs. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think the barrier is, or how do you actually take these kinds of predictions or decisions and then collaboratively with people who depend on those decisions, both to deliver them, but also the people who receive them, right, equally? Um, what does that process look like? Yeah, I think it's a really important question because if you've got the system live, I think some of your problems go away, but you need as long as you're only choosing between known safe therapy options or something like that, maybe you can just you know run your experiments and you can figure out what's actually working for what group of people. Uh, most of our analysis is retrospective, you know, so you take a batch of data and you know that there's all sorts of weirdnesses in how clinicians make decisions. There's all kinds of biases like how certain drugs get prescribed. I'll give you one example. We were doing some analysis and we found that UTIs were associated with Prozac working, which was kind of weird. Okay, you have to break that down for me. Uh, right. Okay. So, so we looked at a couple of other features and it seemed like, okay, maybe it has to do with gender. So maybe it's um, women do better on Prozac, maybe. There's biology involved, could be. I don't know, you guys are the expert biologists. But no, it, it actually turned out that it's because women see OBs and gynecologists who are very risk averse. Prozac is one of the safest antidepressants out there. It's one of the few that we give to children. And so women are typically prescribed this more often because they want to go for the safest drug in case you, know, you might be getting pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, these are things that we would never notice by just looking at the data. Um, and if we had a black box tool that went in and something came out. So we do a lot of stuff. We do a lot of uh, statistical stuff for validation, um, but we also try to uh, develop methods to validate with experts and then also provide information at the bedside. I think it's a great vision. And I think in some cases, like maybe cancer, um, certain types of infectious disease, it may really be the case that once you have the omics, the decision becomes obvious of what to do. But I think in many other cases, like in mental health, another area where we work is the ICU. There's not going to be a good option. In fact, you're going to be just choosing from a lot of bad options. <laughs> you choose which side effect you want or which risks you want to take. And there, um, having the clinician and patient involved is really important. So if they can understand what are their menu of choices, and also, like, where did this recommendation come from? Maybe I'm recommending this drug, or I'm telling you not to take this drug. I'm going to give a con more concrete example, because uh, you've got a more anxious form of depression. And if I give you this drug, you're not going to be able to sleep at night. It's going to exacerbate your anxiety. But if a clinician, I know that, and that's the reason why this drug is not being recommended. Maybe I can give you an augment to help manage that if that other drug has still really good properties for you, right? Like maybe you care a lot about your weight and this drug is one of the few drugs that's not going to cause your weight to go up. So I think that at least in many problems, it's going to be a partnership between the clinician, the patient, and the data. And this is why the interpretability is very important. How do you think, you know, on that point on interpretability, you know, and I take your point very much, right? Like particularly when you're talking about something with medical decisions and if something's been, you know, generated on retrospective data, you know, really proving it out prospectively before using it becomes really, really important. But let's say like one has developed an algorithm and let's say, you know, as you push and prod it, statistically it looks good. You prospectively run it and you prove it out, but it's inscrutable. Right? Let's say it's really coming from a learning network and you can look and look at, at all the factors and it just fundamentally is inscrutable. That seems like certainly lots of conversations I've been in, it, it makes people, it certainly makes physicians very uncomfortable. I think it makes people sort of in the life sciences generally uncomfortable. How, how do you think about that? So like, I think there's two different directions to think about it. So if you're a scientist, you're like, okay, I want to know why this algorithm works, right? Because clearly the algorithm has figured out some 
basic knowledge that I don't know, right? That's if you're the scientist. If you're just like, okay, I just want to make people get better or whatever that is. I do think there's a lot of other forms of validation. For example, uh, this notion of like safety or tolerability versus efficacy. So if you know that this thing is safe, right? If you can show that this deep learning tool never spits out anything that's going to harm someone in a terrible way, then maybe now you just, you, you have an empirical validation that's sufficient, right? That's kind of how we do like, you know, post-market surveillance on drugs right now. And I think that would be plenty fine. But even along those lines, just to push on a little more, you can imagine the machine learning algorithm that diagnoses cancer in a chest x-ray, but there's no feature that a doctor would look at and say, oh, that, that's the nodule. If you just kind of saw a normal looking chest x-ray, you can imagine that might be scary to actually just, especially in the beginning, take the word of, of the machine. This is not a strictly machine learning challenge at this point. This is almost a UI and UX and design problem. And there's people here at Google and there's people, you know, kind of all over the world working on this stuff. And just some of the kind of ideas that people have come up with, a really powerful one is a heat map. So just like a weather report on top of an image and say, okay, here's the hot spot where, you know, if you were to actually delete this from the image, the probability of diagnosing this as, you know, having a cancer would go down dramatically. So that must be an important part of the image and kind of doing that over the whole thing, overlaying it. And then you, you give something for the practitioner to interact with. And they have maybe different layers that they can view, but it's, it's not strictly a machine learning problem at this point. It's like there's a human in the loop. You've got new challenges and new skills to deal with. It's very much an open and active field, and it's hard because we don't really know what people want. <laughs> what do you do, uh, like, sort of on the image? That's like that's a, you know, a great idea and feels very intuitive. So, what if it's not an image? So, like, you, what's the you kind of have to specialize about? for the modality, and you know, you can highlight sentences, right? So, you can imagine having like a little digital highlighter in an electronic medical record that highlighted the important text passages, right, for a particular diagnosis from an EMR. You could maybe, you know, mark the, you know, the beginning and the end. Like, so if, you know, somebody's listening to this podcast and, you know, they see the sound wave, you can mark the beginning and the end of something that was important, right? Like, oh, that's a particularly important segment for diagnosing X or Y. For each medium, it seems like you kind of have to be creative. I mean, the notion of a sensitivity analysis, like, what do you have to jiggle for the output to change? I think it's fairly general. But then there's a question, as you're putting out, it's like, how do you actually present that right. to a user? So we actually do a fair amount of work trying to figure out even, like, what's the language of the clinicians, like when they speak to each other, how do they justify their choices? And can we now convert the machine learning output into that form? Because it's just AI on top of AI, right? Like if we can do the initial diagnosis, surely we can do the initial translation um, into human language. So I was going to say, I think we only have five minutes left on the show. So I was thinking just to kind of go down the line a little bit. And each of you, I'd like to kind of ask your thoughts on an area where you're spending the most time that is at the intersection of these two fields, because you're all working and living it every day. And sort of an area where you kind of feel like over the next five years, there's going to be a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. So maybe start with Alexis. To me, an area that I'm very excited about is saying all these wonderful tools uh, that we're talking about, and usually we try to apply them on the hardest, unsolved, most challenging new problems to go after, which is you know really neat. I think there's also enormous opportunities to take them in from just a call it from a process engineering perspective, of, or how do you go do things that we've been doing but make them radically better? And I think this is something that the tech world has very much spent a lot of time doing. The life sciences world hasn't so much. And I think there's a, a lot of interesting opportunities there. Pardis? Um Yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about before, but I mean, I'm really interested in technologies, both 
genomic and sort of biological as, as well as technical, and you know, a lot of it involving AI, to detecting, characterizing, responding, and, you know, ending an outbreak. And, you know, what's pretty amazing about genomics is genomics is, you know, one of the tools to identify bugs. It's also the way we can characterize how they're transmitting, how they're spreading, where they're moving, how they're changing. It's also the foundations for most treatments. And so my lab actually now works across that continuum. We develop tools to detect viruses and other pathogens to do all the characterization as well as to treat them that are all based on their genomes. And we're developing a lot of very cool computational tools to do that work. We want to be ready for a world where next time a pandemic happens, we can get the collective energy of everyone, because that's the one time we have all your attention, right? During the, the Ebola outbreak, CNN was talking about it 24 hours a day, and everybody's Googling it. But how do we get that sort of collective energy and information from the community to identify and respond to outbreaks? So that's sort of where I, I'm very excited about how this technology might be massively useful. Finale, what do you see going forward? So I'm very excited about validation, like creating the right processes and pathways to go from kind of data analysis on some data that you've collected to like how to put it out there in the real world. So my lab, we're working on statistical methods. We're working on interpretability, as I mentioned before. And I'm really interested in how you take that and make it into something that you, we just do, right? That it's not a research question of how to solve this. There's a clear process of how it's done and then eventually put that into best practices for researchers and potentially regulation to have a way to move all this exciting data that we have um, into benefiting us in practice. Thank you all so much for being here. I've super enjoyed this conversation. So let's give, give our guests a round of applause. Thanks so much to all three of our guests at the live event. Finale Doshi Velas, Assistant Professor at the Harvard University Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Ardis Sabeti of the Broad Institute of MIT as well as Harvard. And Alexis Borisi, a leading life sciences entrepreneur and investor. I think that wraps it up for this episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Alex Wilchko. And I'm Anthony Filipakis. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com.